Revelation 14. While that is happening, people are leaving and people are uh, <clears throat> taking care of those things. Let me do this. Name a type of soda that people like to drink. Oh, man, you've, you hit most all of them. They had 7-Up, Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi, Diet Coke, and number one, the people said Coca-Cola. Here we go. If your dog ran away, something you'd be surprised if he took with him. What's that? His leash? <laughs> His doghouse? His food? Anything else? His kid. <laughs> Here we go. His better pillow. Your shoe. His bone. His food bowl. His Asia collar. Number one. No. Your cat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Name an occasion when parents force their kids to wear a certain dress-up outfit. <laughs> okay. Church wedding is going to be up there. Okay, here's what they had. School picture day. Okay, don't you hate those pictures? Yo, wow. Christmas, church, Halloween, Easter, number one was a wedding. Name something in your fridge for which you should thank a cow. <laughs> there we go. You got them all. Name something that makes Antichrist very popular. His charm. His miracles. Okay, what else? You guys are covering a lot of them. He's going to be good looking. Okay. Anything else that you can think of? What makes him, what makes him the object of worship? There's one thing that happens to him. He, he, he dies and comes back. So you have a variety of different things that make him popular. You could, you've added some that I may have not have put up there. But we're talking in Revelation chapters 12 and 13 about Antichrist and the false prophet. And then God makes a big shift in chapter, chapter 14. Uh, let's do this. I'm going to do this this week, and then when I get back, we're going to do the same thing. Um, let's just back up and remind ourselves where we're at in the book of Chapter 4 through chapter 20, uh, oops, 4 through 11. It should go beyond that, sorry. Uh, they talk about what's happening in the last days, in that last seven years in particular. Chapter 4, the saints are worshiping at the altar. They're casting their crowns. Chapter 5 is there's a scroll, and apparently to complete the kingdom, this scroll needs to be unraveled. And nobody's able to take the, crow, the scroll until Jesus comes forth, and then everybody sings, Worthy... Yeah. Okay. That's chapter 5. Chapter 6 is going to be the setting where all of a sudden we get into some of those exact things happening. Chapter 6 through 11 is a summary of the seven years in total. And so what happens here, um, it's agreement with what Jesus said. If we were to do a timeline, and next time we're going to give you this, these timelines, where all the prophecies basically go in reverse. They give us the kingdom is coming, Daniel 9. And then Daniel backs up and says it starts, the beginning of preparation for the kingdom is seven years before that with a signing by the treaty between Antichrist and Israel. In the middle of that seven years, Antichrist will break the treaty. We think he, he 
he's killed at that time comes back to life. And so in the first three and a half years, as Jesus said, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. The Jews are pretty good in the first three and a half years, but the rest of the world is chaos. In the second three and a half years, Antichrist, when he becomes total world dictator in the final three and a half, he goes after the Jews. And that's when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee for the hills of the wilderness. And so during this time, um, as we said, there's this tremendous trouble worldwide, but in particular for the Jews and everything heightens. There are going to be three set of judgments in the first three and a half years, the seals. That's chapter six. Then you get into the second three and a half years, and the bulk of what's there in chapters eight, nine, ten, eleven are dealing with the trumpet judgments. And then we are going to get to get into the bold judgments that are similar to, parallel to the trumpet judgments. If we were to put it on another graph, we would put it this way. The saints go to heaven before the treaty. We get our reward. Then there's the seal judgments. They come uh, simultaneously or chronologic one after another. But the seventh is bringing the trumpets into play. And so then the trumpet judgments... And again, they end up with the seventh being the return of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that. That's been where we've been chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9. And then we've filled in some of the other things that according to chapters 10 and 11, the Gentiles talks about how they'll overrun the temple for 42 months. It talks about the two prophets who will be preaching during this time period. And so in those other chapters like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, they're giving us background information to all of what we've talked about chronologically. And so then we find out the last trumpet. And so with all that tidbit of information, chapters 12 and 13, they deal with why is it so bad during this three and a half years. And they give you background information. And chapters 12 and 13 talk about the unholy trinity. They talk about the terrible trio, whatever you want to call them, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. And it gives us details. Then chapter 14, it turns. In chapter 14, he's going to talk about and give encouragement to people after they have seen, after they've experienced. Chapter 14 is a chapter of encouragement or of promise or of hope. It is light in a gravely dark tunnel. So we begin in chapter 14 where he says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written in their forehead. And so here again we are reintroduced to the 144,000. We heard about them already in chapter 7. And if we were to flip back to chapter 7 where he first introduced them and he first talked about them, there's a few things that we highlighted about them that's worth repeating once again. Going back to chapter 7, if you just look at the first part of that chapter, what tidbits of information do we have about those? Well, we already said it. How many are there? From where? How do we get that number? Okay, male or female? Male, okay. So we've heard about they're sealed in their foreheads, that some mark has been placed, that they're protected, the 12 from the different tribes. They, according to chapter 7, they reach a, a multitude of people which no man can number. They are not limited to witnessing to just the Jews. 
according to that verse that we're quoting here in chapter 7. They go to all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. So their, their ministry is universal, um, Jews and Gentiles. Most of those people will be martyred. That's the second half of chapter 7. So a lot of them, from the beginning of the tribulation in the first three and a half years, the believers are suffering some persecution around the world, but it will especially heighten in the second three and a half years. So we jump to chapter 14, and we pick up with them the second time that they're mentioned. And starting in chapter 14, here's what we know. It says they're standing with a lamb on Mount Zion. Now there's different ways of interpreting this passage. There's different ways of application. I think personally that what he's doing here is he's taking us to the spot where Jesus comes back and he's returning in his second coming. So he's already talked about that on a couple occasions saying Jesus is coming at the end and he will come down to the Mount of Olives near Mount Zion to set up his capital. And I think this personally that this is referring to his second coming and it says that with him are the 144,000 that are gathered with him, which means in my mind they survive until the end of that time period. That these 144,000 who are sealed in the forehead, they survive. Remember, most believers don't. Many are persecuted. But these two, the two prophets don't survive until the end. But these 144,000 do. And so they're with Christ when he he comes down to Mount Zion. And he goes on and he talks about having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Again, that was mentioned in chapter 7. I think that is a form of sealing, protection, that God is giving them very special. And I think it's really interesting because at the end of chapter 13, and remember there's no chapter headings when it's first written. How did we end up chapter 13, verse 18? He's talking about the number that is the number of man, the 666, which is the mark of the beast. Who has that? Okay, all the unsaved. So I think what he's doing in chapter 18, he's got his, got his purpose in his word giving a flip here, doing a 180 and saying, for all the victories that Antichrist and false prophet and Satan have, here's what I'm doing. Okay, I'm matching them and I have my own witnesses. We have a little bit more. It says as we go through that as they're standing there, he says in verse 2, I heard a voice of, uh, from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder. Um, there's other verses that talk about this idea of this loud sound. Is it an angel? Is it God speaking himself? I'm not sure, but it's, but it's you know, no doubt there's some type of, of reference there to their proclamation that's being made. And he also hears the voice of harpers harping with their harps, so there's some type of melody. And it goes on, it says, they are singing, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the beast, the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed. And so they've got some type of chorus. They've got some type of song that they're learning, that they're saying. And so that redemption idea is what you know. It's the purchasing from the block of sin. Then he talks about this, this idea that we reference quickly after he talks about the new song. It says, these are they which were not defiled with women. Uh, again, we mentioned this a few weeks back. Does that mean any kind of physical relationship is sinful between a male and female? No, no. What's he mean by this, that these guys were not defiled? What's that? They haven't married. 
Okay, they're, they're not engaged in that. It's not saying marriage is bad or sexual relations are totally bad in the marriage relationship. It's not promoting celibacy. It just says these guys, and remember, they're living in a world during that tribulation time that's very immoral. So these guys kept themselves apart and pure in an immoral society by following that idea of keeping their flesh, their bodies, as the vessel that God wanted to use. So they're going to, that, I think that phrase is emphasizing the fact that they are really different. They are living, living up to following the Lord because watch what he adds to this. They were not defiled for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lord whithersoever. His emphasis is on these guys' lifestyle. It's one of purity. It's one of following Christ whithersoever he goes. Why would that be difficult in that time period? Why does he highlight these guys followed the Lord wherever he sent them? What's that? Sin is all around them. Bob, you were going to say? Yeah. Yeah, right? Right? He's, just, he's describing these guys as being really genuine. And the majority of people aren't doing that. And so he's in the idea of following the Lord, just so you have this, it's the idea of they did it over and over and over. It wasn't just on a Sunday. This was their lifestyle. It wasn't just for a month. It, this was their lifestyle all the way through those seven years that they were following the Lord. And again, we have to remember it's illegal to follow Christ at that time. So they are doing something that is really, really remarkable in that time period, living away outside of the, uh, the pressures of society. And then he repeats it a second time. A little bit different. Okay, he says they were redeemed from among men before he said from the earth. But it's that same concept again that they were bought by Christ. They're redeemed. And I think what he's talking about, I think, is the highlight in my perspective is that he's saying that they were able to live a pure life. They were able to live a dedicated life. And the ability to do that and the motivation came from the fact that they were redeemed. You and I can't live in and of ourselves for the Lord, for his glory, but by his power of his spirit and his redemption works. So it's stressed again that idea that they believe, they know, they're motivated because they're the property of God. Then he adds something else at the end of verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says that they do this being the what? What's your Bible read at the end of verse 5? Uh, verse 4, I'm sorry. I can't do numbers this morning. Being the what? What's it mean to be the first fruits? What do you, what's that? Living the sacrifice? Okay. It, it's got to be a concept that... What's that? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly where you want to go with that. Thank you, Joyce. That idea of being a first fruit, okay, unto God and the Lamb, what in the Jewish mind was the first fruits? What did it signify? Okay, you're giving your best, the very first... And again, we would say the first portion or the best. We're giving it to the Lord for whose use? Okay, his use. Okay. What else does first fruit signify? When it says Jesus, we, we, we mentioned this last Sunday. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first one. Okay, the first one. And so it has, it has a dual concept in a Jewish thinking. It has dedication, but it also has promise. Does that make sense? Okay. I am dedicating my very best to the Lord, but also this is indicating that God promises, when it comes to the crops, God promises there's going to be more. Okay. And so if, and I'm not sure which one or if both. 
Okay, to me, it makes sense for both. That he's talking about these are the ones that are really dedicated to the Lord. And as well, they are indicating that they are the first saved in the tribulation with the promise that there's going to be more people in this harvest of souls during the tribulation period. And we know that's true. We know more Jews will get saved, and we know a lot of Gentiles will get saved. But those who get saved, what is going to be most of their experience? They're going to be killed. They're going to be martyred. But it's interesting that he uses that phrase, that they're the first fruits. And then he says in verse 5, in their mouth was found, uh, I have guile in my translation. What do you have? No deceit? No lies? Okay. Do you remember anybody else going through a difficult time and it highlights that while he was going through this difficult time, there was no guile in his mouth or deceit? What's that? Job, okay, it's mentioned. I'm thinking of a New Testament character. What'd you say? Jesus, do you, you don't remember where by chance, do you? Okay. Uh, do, you, do you remember what the occasion was for Christ? Yeah, it's within that whole frame of Jesus going through the trials and his crucifixion. It's mentioned in Peter's epistle where he makes the comment that uh, he is giving us an example, okay, that we should follow in his steps. In his mouth was no guile. Why, do we hi- why does God highlight that? that there was no deceit, no lying, no guile in their mouth. Jesus, when he's in his trial, when he's in his crucifixion, these guys living without guile. Why would that be something that you would highlight? What's that? Okay, okay, that's a good point. The tongue can't be tamed. Is, is the circumstances? Okay. Well, oh, that's a good point, that it's, it's obviously identifying them that they're acting very much like Christ by using that same concept. You think, you think that's the case for a lot of people? Yeah, to, in the middle of pressure, to just say, yeah, I, I cave in, I give in. I think, I think everything you said is exactly why he's highlighting this aspect of their life that compares them to Christ. And again, they're living in a time period, these, these 144,000. What is the predominant thought about theology? Uh, give me a, the theology will be true, false, false. Remember, he uses phrases, deception, lies, okay? So they're speaking the truth while the rest of the world is giving falsehood. So there's a contrast here again in their purity compared to the rest of the world, in their devotion compared to the rest of the world, in their doctrine compared to the rest of the world, that these guys, despite what it could mean for them and their followers, and, uh, and let me throw this out. You witness sometimes. You share the Word of God. What, what, is, what could be a discouragement to you when you give out tracts or you give out the Word of God? What is... That's what I'm after. What did you say? Yeah, because when people reject, after that happens two or three times, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So these guys, remember, they're preaching what is the reaction of most people. Rejection. Rejection. Yeah, there's going to be a, a great amount of harvest, but at the same time, compared to the 
to the most people, they're still speaking the truth. Even when they're getting whammied for it. Even when there's difficulties for it. Even when the converts that they're leading are dying. And so I, I think that's another phrase highlighting how distinguished they are compared to what's going on around them. And then it says, and they're without fault before the throne of God. Anybody have another word for, word for fault? What's that? Without blame. Yeah, the word literally has the idea of blameless, where it's used, where it says qualifications for like church leaders, they need to be blameless. What does blameless mean? Without fault. Does it mean sinless? No. What's it mean? Okay, obviously forgiveness is involved in it. Thank God. What else? Spiritual what? What do you mean by that? Spiritual exoneration. You're using bigger words that some of us early in the morning aren't with you. Okay. Okay, okay. With that forgiven aspect, it's cleansed. Anything else? What's that? Nothing accused. What did you say over here? Okay, okay. So they're living in such a way, the concept that... that touching on is we're forgiven. It's not meant we're sinless. But these guys, they're called blameless. Preachers are supposed to be blameless. doesn't mean we're sin, sinless. It just means we're trying to live in such a way that it's a sanctified life. That we are trying to live in a way that we are genuine without hypocrisy. Okay? Consistent. Um, you know, not, not, not uh, playing a game. It means as well that we live a separated life, that we're not going along with everything in the world, that we are really genuine of saying, you know, I'm following Christ, and when you say I'm following Christ, you are following Christ. Okay, and so that concept, and again, it's highlighting these guys, the different aspects of them, and I look and I say, why does he highlight this about them? Because the setting that they're in. They're in such an immoral, ungodly, dark world. And even though we think our world is dark, is it going to be darker then? Yeah. And, there can, and what's that tell you? If they can live in a dark society, we can too. We can too. Are we redeemed like they are redeemed? Do we have a sealing of the Spirit? Yeah, okay. So to me, there are good examples for us. Now, just this isn't original to me. This is somebody else that brought this up. And they said that these guys, and they point out, they lead the greatest spiritual awakening in history. And so the greatest uh, you know, harvest of souls. What is it about them that makes them so effective? And this author who put this down, I think it was MacArthur, put it down. He said he highlighted several things just very quickly. They all begin with P. I thought it was well and worth it to just share it with you. Because you and I want to be a witness, yay or nay. Okay, we want to be a witness. We're not in as terrible of a time, but how do we become an effective... Well, before I give you what he said, okay, what do you think helps us to be an effective witness that you've just heard so far about these 144,000? What's that? Patience. Okay. Did you say walking the talk? Okay. What else? Anything else? What's that? Okay. Anything else? What's that? Persistence. Good, good. Anything else? Okay. Anything else? Go ahead. 
Okay, a unity amongst the 144,000. Good. Anything else? You're adding more than what I was going to put up, but that's excellent. Go ahead. Ron? Okay, good. Good. Anything else? Here's what, with taking that and just, you know, highlighting these verses and just simplicity of what we've just done. Uh, MacArthur had this. He said their power, where do they get their power from? It's really clear because they're sealed by the Father. So they're not self-reliant. They understand their power comes from God. Their, their praise, okay, despite living in dark days, what does this passage say they're doing? They're singing a song that only they can sing, but they're giving praise to God. Does praise enhance our witness? Sure, okay. So I thought that was excellent. Purity, okay, it's highlighted that they're living a pure life. Does purity go with what you just said, walking the walk, okay, or walking the talk, however you said it, sorry. Um, So that purity, uh, partisanship, that idea of being fully loyal to Jesus Christ, where that comment was made that whithersoever the Lord would have them to go, they're going. Their purpose, as some of you said, they're redeemed. They know what their goal is. Their goal is to follow the Lord. He redeemed them. They belong to Him. They know their first fruits. Their precision, the idea that they're being precise, they're being accurate in what they say, they are not fudging. They're telling the truth. They're speaking it clearly without guile. Their perfection in the sense of blamelessness, sanctification, not sinless perfection, but the idea that they're living a blameless life. Then the question came to me as I was wrapping it up, okay, does this describe me? Okay, If I want to be a witness for Christ, then I need to have these character attributes. So before we move off of these 144,000, let's just say, okay, what do we learn from them? I think we too need to remember we have a calling of God. Ours is different than 144,000, but we have a calling of God. Our calling of God is to live for Christ as well as to share the gospel with all people. We are to be a witness, a light in darkness. So is it possible even in the darkest of times to fulfill God's calling? Yes, okay. Um, Effective witnessing can be done at any time in any place, any country. Are some places more dark than other places? Yeah, they really are. They really are. Can there be more opposition in some businesses where you work than in other people's Christians? Yeah, yeah, we know that's true. We understand that. Can some communities be more reserved and reject and hard to the gospel than other communities? Yeah, yeah. But it still can be done. To make your witness credible, you need to live a godly godly life. And we've already mentioned several areas. And so to me, they're an outstanding group of people. But are they the only ones that God was using besides them and the two prophets to get out the word of God? Can you think of anybody else that in the end times he's going to use? Who I said the, the 140 besides the two witnesses. Anybody else? Somebody said it over here. Look at the next verse. The next verse. It says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel to do what with it? To preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every... How how many people is he talking to? Okay. Does he keep it quiet, verse 7? No. No. He says with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Then you see another angel coming, and then you see another angel coming. And so again, remember we've had the false trinity in chapters 10 and, or chapters 12 and 13. Now God is flipping that and saying, I'm not, I'm not um, impotent in this situation. I am at work at the same time. I have 144,000. I also have angels that are doing my bidding. And so the rest of chapter 14 is dealing with some of his messengers. Now the messenger that first shows up is the first angel. And that first angel, several things that we just read about, let's highlight, this angel is flying in the middle of heaven. The word that's used there for the middle of heaven is the idea at the, at the zenith of the sun. It's used in the Old Testament in the LXX, the Septuagint, with the idea at the high point of the sun, okay, that, that he's doing it. Does that mean he's doing it at noon? Someplace, somewhere, it's going to be at noon. Um, or is he following the sun and going along with the sun as it goes around the world? I don't know all the details, but this is what I think he's, he's giving is if he's at the peak of where he is, up there, then that idea is he's at the most visible spot that people can see. There's an unobstructive presentation of what he's saying. People aren't going to say, well, he was too low on the horizon. I couldn't see him for the trees. The point is this angel is going to be seen and heard by who? All the people. All the people. So this is a heavenly messenger that is adding to what the 144,000. This is obviously a supernatural happening. Are the people of the world seeing other supernatural happenings? Which ones? Like, like categorize them. This one's God declaring the truth. What are the other supernatural happenings going on? Truth or falsehoods? falsehoods. So the people, you, this is me. My initial reaction is, if I saw an angel flying in the middle of the sky and yelling loud enough that I could hear that angel, I would I would freak out. (laughs) What would you do? Would you believe? Would, Would he catch your attention? But remember at the same time, and I had to pause and think this through, at the same time are there other supernatural creatures? Yeah, so he's, it's happening. I'm not trying to diminish it because God is doing it at the zenith where the others are here on the earth. But those people, is there, is, is supernatural stuff, could it become confusing, hard, uh, commonplace? Okay, so, um, but God does it. God does it in a very clear way. Okay, and why would God do that to these people who have rejected him? What'd you say? He's giving them one more chance. Now, what have the majority of those people already done? They've taken the mark of the beast, according to chapter 13. Okay, but he's still giving the truth out because then no man is without excuse. They have heard. They have heard. So, uh, this angel's presenting truth, and he says, and I think this is an important thought, he describes it as the eternal gospel. He calls it the eternal, what's that mean to you when he says he's preaching the eternal gospel? What's that? Okay, it's going to include judgment, that, and we're going to get to that, because that's very important. When we think gospel, we think, what's the word mean? 
Good news, good news. Okay, so when we think gospel, we usually think positive. Yes, no? Okay, but in this case, I'm ahead of myself, but I'm so glad you brought it up. In this case, does it include a negative aspect? Yeah, because look what the angel is doing. The angel, oops, where are we at? Um, he says, the good news, fear God, etc., etc., because the hour of what? So does the gospel, the good news, in, indicate or clear, uh, include a negative aspect? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So go, go ahead. Go ahead. For the unbelievers, absolutely, absolutely. What else does eternal gospel say to you? Okay. That God had this, God knew how he was going to bring about salvation in eternity past. He doesn't force it, but did he plan it? Yes, he did. Okay. What else does it say to you? Oh, Kevin, that's excellent. It's always... The same message. It doesn't change. Did they get saved? Now, I'm going to throw you for a loop here. Did they get saved the same way in the Old Testament that we get saved today? By faith. It was always by faith in what God does. Okay? That's the big thing. It's always been by faith, and it will always be by faith faith. It doesn't change. It's an eternal gospel that says God will provide salvation, not us. Now, in the Old Testament, did they know the full totality of what that meant? That Jesus would come, be born, and die? No, but they, did they have a picture that God needed blood to cover? Yeah. So they had this idea, we need faith in, the, in God providing the, uh, the salvation. We can't do it. We need to repent of our sins. That aspect of the gospel has been the same. And it was the same in the Old Testament. It's the same when Jesus was on earth. It's the same when the church started. It's the same in the tribulation. So what does that mean about today? Is it still that same gospel? Do churches change the gospel? <laughs> they're not supposed to, but do churches alter the gospel? Yeah, in fact, what did Paul say? If any other, if an angel or any other man comes and preaches another gospel, he's saying that it's possible that false teachers may present a false gospel, but another one, what did he say about those people that changed the gospel? Let them be accursed. Okay. Out of Galatians chapter 1, he makes that comment. So he's talking about the eternal gospel, which is for all people. He makes it clear here. All people, again, as we know today, everybody, it's the same gospel. So if somebody says to you, yeah, but what about that poor person who grew up in the Muslim faith? You know, as long as they were sincere in their faith, then it's okay. No, no. The gospel of salvation by faith got through Christ as we know it today, that has to be presented to all nations, all tribes. Okay, this is the same, the same way of salvation for everyone. What it tells me is God has universal concerns. 
in the book of Revelation, he is highlighting, and in chapter 11, he, or 12, he especially highlighted what group of people did God, does God especially protect? The Jews, as far as tribes and nations. We know the 144,000. But does God have universal concern for salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so it's going to be done. And again, this is, God is telling it to people as a whole are succumbing to Antichrist. Uh, maybe some have yet to choose the mark or not, but they've rejected up to this point. Remember in the first three and a half years we talked about it, they will fall, they will run into the mountains and caves because they are fearful. They know it's the judgment of God and they will say, hills and caves, fall on us. They don't have a repentant heart. And so they're very, very hard as a whole, and yet God gives them another chance. What does that tell you about God? Okay, so we, we come back to God is still holy and God is merciful. Grace and holiness. That is just, uh, it's an amazing thought that God would do this at this point. The angel, having the everlasting gospel, you already mentioned these things, that it is uh, unchanging. Nothing about God has changed, despite, uh, oh, that's what I want to point. Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet are blaspheming God during this time. It's not that they don't believe in God. Isn't that interesting? They blaspheme him, and they're telling people falsehoods about God, God the Father, and, and Antichrist is saying, I'm the new God, etc. But at the same time, God never changes. And God is working even in the midst of being lied about. The angel calls with a loud voice to the young and say, fear God and give him glory. Think through your Bible knowledge. What does fear of God, what, what is that? What comes to mind when somebody says fear of God? Reverence, okay. What's that? It's the beginning of wisdom, okay? So let's combine those ideas. Fearing God is that idea that you need to change your attitude about what you've been hearing about God and what you think about Antichrist. Reverence has to be towards Jesus Christ. And remember, these are people who are blaspheming him. They're, they're condemning him. And he's basically saying, shut your mouth. Change what you're doing. And it goes back to that same idea repeated multiple times. Fear the Lord is the beginning of... Wisdom. Okay. So he says, fear God and give him glory. He adds to that, and, and I find this really interesting. Give him glory, and then he's going to say, and worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of water. I, I, all of that to me combines, and I don't think I did it in my notes, but let me remind you that the man's purpose for which we were created was for his yeah, his pleasure, his glory. And that's been the problem with people. People have not kept knowledge of God that's innate, and they turn to worship the creature. Yeah, okay. And so God gives them over to their delusion. But he sends this angel to say, hey, let me remind you, God is supposed to get the glory uh, because the hour of judgment has come. It is that concept that, that obviously part of the gospel is a negative. It's not wrong when you're sharing the gospel to talk about hell, to warn people. Uh, it needs to be a part of it because part of salvation is repentance. Not just, a whole lot of us, uh, maybe I'm assuming too much. The church I grew up in, they talked about Jesus being our Savior. But we didn't know he was the Savior, 
Okay, and so it's one thing to believe here, but that idea of I got to believe in my heart comes along with I need desperately a Savior. I'm not good enough myself. So the opportunity is fading fast, and so he's warning them. And then what he does, and this is a part that I think would help you and me in our witnessing, he brings up worship him that made the heavens, the earth, and the fountains of water. Creation shows the majesty of God. Yea, nay. Okay, that it, it, it just tells us about his greatness, his majesty, his goodness, you know, his power. Does creation, is creation ever used as a tool for witnessing? Where? In the Bible, in the Bible. Okay, Romans 1, he brings it up that people know what? About God's power, God's greatness. Can you think of any other time, that, and it's the Apostle Paul, again, do you think of any other time that he used creation as his diving board to sharing the gospel? Go ahead, Ron. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. In Colossians 1, by Christ all things consi- uh, were created and consist. And then he talks about we're giving accountability to Christ. Okay. I thought for sure you were going to go to the, the passage about the Athens. Mars Hill. I thought yeah, that's where you headed for because of your trip. Um, that idea that he brings it up at Mars Hill, he brings up the idea that's where he starts with that whole witnessing in the book of Acts, where he starts with that idea of you have an, you remember, remember what they have at Athens? They have all these pantheon and gods. Do you remember the one statue that Paul highlights? to the unknown God, and he talks about this is the unknown God that made you. And he highlights that idea. This is the one you're, because you're made, what's that mean? He made us, therefore, there's so many things you could say. He made us, therefore, you're accountable to him. Okay? Anything else? Since he made us, okay, good, okay, Okay, so that whole idea that we're going we're gonna to be accountable and we should, we should reverently fear him because he's our creator. And so what do we learn from this angel? Several thoughts. God wants the unsaved to hear even, though, even when he employs an angel. It's another thought. Even the gospel, even, uh, God even has the gospel preached again to people who have repeatedly rejected it. And I'm not sure when this, when this line is crossed. So if you ask me, I don't know. Is there a time that we shake the dust off our feet and move on? Okay, that's a principle in Scripture. Is there a time that we keep on repeating the gospel? Okay, how do you know when should I witness some more or should I move on? How do you know? You've got to pray about it. You've got to pray about it. I, See, I think we're right back to where we then, on Sunday morning last week, we preached on a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, but the question is, does the Holy Spirit have us? And when that happens, we call that the blank of the Spirit. Oh, thank you, thank you, you listened. Okay, so it's the filling of the Spirit. And so I think that that guiding direction of the Spirit is, you know, are we yielded to the Spirit and He'll, he'll guide and direct. But in the meantime... You know, the lesson here is one and done is usually where we're at, but God is more patient, and God gives the word time and time again. Let me, re, let me ask this a different way. 
How many of you heard the gospel multiple times before you got saved? How many? Okay, probably the majority of us. Okay, it wasn't the first time. Um, God wants it proclaimed in the midst of darkness in a time of great spiritual depravity. Okay, so it can be preached and be effective. Our God is patient. I mean, this is a grace passage, once again, filled with judgment. Now, that's not the only angel. Then he goes on, he says, there's another angel, okay, a second angel that's preaching, but this one doesn't have a gospel message of forgiveness. The second angel's message, verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Okay? Who's Babylon? Who's he talking about in this verse? This is the first introduction in Revelation that we have to this reference of Babylon, the great city. We're going to hear about it some more. What's that? Okay. Anybody, any, any other observations who it is? What it is? What's that? The Antichrist, what'd you say? Okay, okay. Um, he makes, I want you to catch something here where he makes a comment. There followed another angel, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Then he gives us an idea of what it is. The, what, what's your next phrase? It's a great city. Okay, here are the different options that people will throw out there. This is Babylon's capital city. This is his place that in the second half in particular that he's operating from this with the site of the ancient Babel or Babylon. Some will suggest this. Some will say it's the religious system. It's not a city itself, but it's the concept. It's like um, what religious system is associated with Rome? Okay, right. What religious system with uh, Mecca? Is Mecca the, the city or the... It's one of the cities. What, what, what religious system? Okay, so they're saying that this is reference only to a religious system. That, and, and does Antichrist have a religious system? Yeah, and his propagator is... I, I've only got it up here for you. Okay, because I hit my clicker twice. Okay. The false prophet, this is his whole system. So some say it's not the capital city, but it's the concept of the religious system. Some say, well, it's not just the religious system, it's just the whole idea of, and we, we do this. We say, um, American, if we're going to talk about federal government, what do we, we might just use a city name. Okay, and we're thinking federal government. We're not thinking of the town exactly, we'll just say, well, Washington tells us this. And we're talking about the political system. Uh, some say it's the economic system. Will there be an economic system at that time that is worldwide? Okay, we would already talked about that. Okay, the 666. Some say it's all of the above. I'm going to go with A and the last one. Okay, that there is a real city, that Babel, a Babylon, that Antichrist is going to be functioning from, operating out of, and from that place he has this religious system that he's, that he's operating, but he's also going to be tied to some degree to Jerusalem, but this Babylon with, it has his political system, economic system, and everything tied together. Be that as it may, he says this Babylon, this thing that represents Antichrist and his control, what happens to it? Why is that interesting in light of what we've already studied? 
Now think this through. The angel is saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. By the way, why is he, is the, this angel got a stuttering problem? Why is he doing it? Yeah, he's doing it for an emphasis, okay? To get a point across. What's the point? Why is that significant at that time from what we've already been studying? Yeah, what has the world been saying about Antichrist? Right? Right? Okay, a lot of you are saying the, the things that are blending together. So it talks about this, remember, Antichrist, who is able to stand against him? Who is like Antichrist? And God is saying, yeah. Now, he describes the city that he made all the nations drink with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What's that mean? Okay, that idea. The idea of wrath is thumos. It, it, it could be not anger, but it could be passions. It could be lusts. It could be, um, you know, anything of that, that evil consort. And he t- talks about it with her fornications. In the Bible, is fornications always physical? Could there be spiritual fornication? Is the world fornicating against God at that time? Yes, okay. And has the, uh, the city of Babylon with the false prophet Antichrist, have they persuaded, according to this verse, all the nations to join in in this evil spiritual lusting against God? That's the concept, okay, that he's talking about. And when he says that you're going to drink of the passions of her fornications, that means the city is extremely wicked. It is very anti-God, but it's influential. Because how, how far does its, in, its power influence? Okay, it says worldwide. The city is the chief of the cities in that day. And again, who can stand against Antichrist? Who is able to make war against him? So this is a very powerful center of influence that is just, if you put one word over it, well, what word would you stamp on it? Just think of anything. What word? What's that? Condemned. Good, bad, evil, okay, wicked. Um, you know, this would be called the sin city of the world, okay? And yet for all of her successes and her influence, what does the angel say? N- not just once. Okay, so he's, it's really, what does that say to you? Okay, what? Okay, it says God is in control. When it's saying is fallen, is fallen, the idea is it's happening. It, this, isn't, this isn't just like, oh, well, it is absolutely certain this city is being crushed. And Bob, you alluded to it's being crushed by God. So despite the incredible power of Antichrist, which we've read about this in the last few verses, that people have you know, acquiesced to him, God is going to take them out. His capital, his... His seat of authority, it's going to be destroyed by God. Point is, in the midst of great wickedness that results in martyrdom and all this evil, God is stronger than the evildoers. Okay? So, you know, the bottom line is for us, when we see wickedness propagated, what do we know? It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, God is going to take care of it. And when God says, even in our own lives, and sometimes we think we can get away from it, what does God say about it? Be not deceived. 
Whatsoever man sows. Yeah, that's a truism. Our God is not sitting up there, you know, blatantly blind to it. He deals with things. So anyway, we're going to worship him in the next few minutes. So let's get ready. Take our break. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your input this morning.